Welcome to the Moses Lake Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This episode is from our Consumed Sermon Series, which talks about loving God and loving others with everything that we have. We hope that this sermon will be an encouragement to you, and we would love to hear how God used it in your life. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter number 2 this morning, 1 John chapter number 2. And as you're turning there, I wanted to say thank you to Pastor for giving me the opportunity. And it seems like uh, the last three years in a row I've preached on this Sunday or Father's Day Sunday. And so it's starting to become a little bit of a, a routine for us. And so I look forward to it and a great opportunity. But First John chapter number 2 in your Bibles. And I'm not going to have you stand this morning for the sake of uh, time. And, uh, and just want to get right on into that this morning if that's okay. And as we say in our Sunday school class often, I hope you're buckled in and ready to go. And uh, you might like me a lot more at the beginning of the message than you do at the end of the message. But I pray that, uh, that what the Lord's laid on my heart, uh, I would convey in such a way that would be a help and a blessing. And the Bible tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And sometimes we need to be told the truth. And uh, there's a, a southern gospel song that was going around about uh, two years, three years ago. And it just simply said, Preacher, tell me like it is. Right? Tell me like it is. That's what we want to know. We don't want to hear all the flowery stuff. We, want, we don't want to know how good man is and how good we have it. Just tell it like it is. Tell us the truth. And when we go to the doctor's office, we don't want the flowery words. We want to hear the truth. And so this morning I pray that I can do my very best to deliver that truth in love. And I told most of you this week that I have struggled uh, putting this message together, and uh, it's not because it was hard to come together, it's because this message is not for you this morning. You just get to listen in to the preacher preach to himself. And I don't say that lightly, because God has worked me over this week on this passage of Scripture and so even though you're here listening, and even though I might say some of you's and these and we's, it's mainly for me. And I, I told many of you, I tried to convince God to let me speak on something else on a Sunday morning, but he just wouldn't have it. And so this morning, we're just going to jump right on into it. So if you have your Bibles, 1 John chapter number 2. 1 John chapter number 2, and I want to see just, th just a few words, four simple words out of 1 John chapter number 2. The Bible simply says this, Love not the world. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 15, Love not the world. Father, as we come one last time before you, we are in need of your help this morning. And Lord, there's a lot of things that could be said this morning from this passage, and a lot of things, Lord, that probably don't need to be said. And so I pray, Lord, that you'd give me a Holy Spirit unction, that I would know the difference, and that I would only say those things that would be helpful and encouraging, but yet, Lord, help me to say the truth that you'd have delivered. For Lord, we are living in a situation in our nation and in our history and in our even church history, that, Lord, we need to be told it like it is. And so I pray this morning that you'd help me to do so, be with those away from us. I think of those uh, other sister churches, even today, celebrating, one, their 80th anniversary, another, their 33rd anniversary. And, uh, Lord, I just ask that you would bless their services in a mighty way. But, Lord, would you speak to our hearts this morning? 
And as we pose that question in the opening reading, what is it that's consuming us? Is it a love for you, or as we shall see here in just a moment, is it a love for this world? Father, bless the reading and the preaching of thy word now, for it's in thy son's precious name. Before I end my prayer, you might say something in regards to the Lord of, Lord, speak to my heart, and Lord, remove the scales from my eyes, remove the walls, the barriers that I would put up in my own heart from hearing a message like this, and help me to be open and honest before you. And maybe as the psalmist prayed, you would pray, Lord, search my heart and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. Father, bless now the preaching of your word. It's for in thy son's precious name we pray. Amen. I would argue with you today that we live in a, a, the greatest tug of war of the world and the flesh and the devil on the spiritual lives and the hearts and minds of each and every Christian. I think about the social media and the comparisons and just how easy it is for the media to bombard us with attractive people telling us that we can't be happy unless we own their product or we are, are adapting to their lifestyle or we are pursuing that next big and beautiful home or car or luxury item or expensive vacation. And it all, it all can be yours just by putting it on their credit card or by signing up for their mailing list or by just getting involved in their program. And daily we are are bombarded as Christians with the cares of this world. And I just want to say this on the very onset, that if your heart is captured by the world, you will love the things of the world. And if your heart is captured for a love for God, then you will be drawn to Him and you will love the things that God loves. John chapter number, or first John, the apostle John is writing his book and he's writing to churches that have been infected and confused by false teachers. These teachers tried to draw away people into their inner circle of you just have to have a little bit more knowledge and a little bit more wisdom, but their doctrine and their practice revealed that they did not truly know who God was. And so, God, uh, so John gives them three tests by which his readers could evaluate these false teachers, and we find that here in the book of John. He gives them, first of all, a moral test or a test of their obedience to Christ. Are, are, are these false teachers, are they obedient to Christ? Are they consumed with a love for Him? But then he also gives them a relational test. Do they have a love, a genuine and sincere love for others? And again, I put that plug in. If you did not hear that message last week, I encourage you to look that up. But here he's asking, do you have that relational test, that love for others? But then he also gives them, thirdly, a doctrinal test, a, a test of whether they're believing the truth about who Jesus Christ is. Because a lot of religions want to add to uh, the religious practices, but I see here that John just simply says, no, it's all about Christ. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And we see that in 1 John chapter number 2, John applies these tests to these believers. He gives them the first test, and this is just an, uh, an overview of our passage here, but he gives them the first test of their authentic faith that obeys God's commands. In chapter 2, verses 7 through verse number 11, he applies that, and then he gives them the second test, that, that authentic faith that loves God's people, and he, he gives them that test, and he pauses even in the midst of chapter number 2, and in verses 12 through verse number 14, and again, I don't have time to alliterate all this, but he just he gives them assurance and clarification that they are indeed showing confidence that they have an authentic faith because he is, they are loving the brethren. And then he assumes his application by giving them that, that last test of authentic faith 
of, of uh, loving and of knowing the truth about Jesus Christ in verses 18 through 27. But he pauses here in verse number 15 through verse number 17, and this will be our primary text this morning, and he simply just cuts right to the chase. He draws a line in the sand, if you will, and he says there's no middle ground. You're either on this side of the aisle or you're on this side of the aisle. There's no straddling the line, and he comes right at the heart of the matter to these people, and, <laughs> excuse me, and he says, love not the world. Love, not the world. I see, first of all, if we get right on into it this morning, I see a direct command. A direct command. Right there in these first four words that we read this morning, this direct command of love, not the world. In order to understand this command, we need to understand some of the words that make up this command. We all right this morning? Some of you, I think, have already lost you. All right, good. We need to understand, first and foremost, some of these words. And I see the word love. There are three Greek words that often are used to describe love. The first word is eros. This is talking about an erotic love, a physical, a, a, a physical or uh, an intimate uh, sexual attraction. And that is not used in the Bible, but that is one of the words that is often brought up in Greek language. But I see a second word, phila, or this idea of brotherly love. How many of you know Philadelphia? the city of brotherly love, right? And oftentimes this word phila is used in the Bible, talking about this brotherly love, this strong bond because of a commonality. We might have a commonality of a, a football team that we like, and therefore we share a, a brotherly connection. We might have family members that we are connected to because of a commonality in values or interests or activities. But that's not the word that John is using here. In fact, John is using the third word, and many of you already know where this is going, and that is the Greek word word agape agape is the greek word that he is using this word defines an unconditional love it's an undeserving it's an unmerited it's a an, a love that is offered despite the disappointment and the rejection and that is the love that god has towards us this is not just a passing feeling that john is trying to communicate to the children in the book of first john that he is writing to no this is a strong connotation that he is using that we ought to have a love that is unconditional or is very committed, not just an emotion or a feeling. It's as if John is trying to get our attention with the very first word. And he wants us to understand that we need to have an unwavering commitment to someone or to something. Or, in this case, as the second word that we'll define describes, the object of our love sh should not be committed to or unwavering to this particular someone or something. And that is that second key word, the word world. The Greek word for world, cosmos, occurs 185 times in the New Testament. John the Apostle uses it 105 of those times, 78 of them in the Gospels, 24 in the Epistles, and we see here even, and then three in the book of Revelation. And it originally meant order, and it came to refer to the universe as being well-ordered by God. But this world can also be used in differing contexts, and I want you to see just a few of them, and I'll end off with the one that John is actually using. But this word world could be used to represent, and we all understand this, the planet, right? The planet, the physical material earth of the 
world. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the physical, material planet Earth of God's creation. And we understand that creation itself testifies of God and His almighty power. I see here several verses that can help us identify or use this word. Jeremiah 10, 12, He hath made the earth by His power. He hath established the world by His wisdom and stretched out the heavens by His discretion. Romans chapter 1, verse number 20, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen talking in reference to the planet i also see first john or excuse me john chapter number one and verse number 10 john says this he was in the world and the world was made by him i see these two uses of this world referring to the planet but i see that verse goes on and it jumps right into the second use of the word the bible then says he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not is that talking about the physical planet did not know Christ? No, that's using the word world for a different meaning or a different definition, and that is not just the planet, but the people. Are you with me this morning? The people. This is in reference really to the human race that is in need of, of redemption. This is the object of God's affection. Come on, you know the verse, don't you? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Is he talking about the physical planet? No. He's talking about the people, the human race that is in need of salvation. For he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in the son, or excuse me, believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, excuse me, but that the world through him might be saved. I, I think Satan is fighting this morning. <clears throat> it, it was a long week at work. Uh, a lot of things came up <clears throat> that uh, were unexpected. Power was off this morning at our house, and now, out of nowhere, my voice is going. <laughs> you think Satan doesn't want you to hear something this morning? But we see here the people, the human race. John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, and man, I really apologize, because that has to sound horrible to you, <laughs> if it sounds horrible to me. Whew. We're going to guzzle it. 1 John chapter 2, verse number 2, and he is a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world, the human race. John chapter 1, verse number 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming. This is John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, and cometh unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world, not the planet, but of humankind. God's love is toward all of mankind, and we know that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But I also know this to be true, and that is that God often uses you and I to share that message with the lost and dying world. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, ye are the light of the world. Uh, not too many people come on and turn the switch on and you just pop up and are a bright light to people for the planet. But you are a bright light to your coworkers and your family and your neighbors because of the hope that rests within you. But John, however, is not referring to a love for the planet or a love that we should have towards people. 
Instead, John is using this word world to represent what I would say is the third definition, and that is of a power. A power. I've written this down to help us understand. John is speaking about an organized influence that draws us away from God. He's speaking about the atmosphere of darkness that subtly overtakes you and overtakes I and overtakes the people on this planet to blind them to the truth. It's the riptide of evil, one person said, that pulls us away from the shore of God's goodness. Listen to these verses and you'll kind of catch the idea of this dark power, if you will, that's at work on the world. 1 John 5, 19, and we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in, in, in wickedness. That's that power. Colossians 2, verse 8, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Romans chapter 12, and verse number 2, a verse we all know, and, uh, excuse me, and be not conformed to this world, not the planet, we're not talking about the people. We're talking about the actions and the attitudes and the value systems and, and, and all that is encompassed in this influence that draws us away from God. Matthew chapter 13, verse number 22, a parable that, parable that Jesus used. He, he then tells them what the meaning of it was. And this is where the seed was scattered and some fell on the wayside and some fell on the thorns and some fell on good ground. You remember that parable. And in his describing the parable to his, uh, to his uh, disciples, he says in verse number 22 of Matthew 13, he also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. And the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke that word, and he becometh unfruitful. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you can't tell me that this doesn't describe this power, this organized influence that tries to keep us away from understanding God's goodness and from sharing God's light with a lost and a darkened world. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, little g God, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 2, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. John isn't talking about the physical earth when he says, love not the earth. Hey, I enjoy God's creation, don't you? And it testifies of God's handiwork and God's magnificence. But John is not saying, don't love creation. John is also not saying not to love the people that God has created. For we understand, as we heard last week and as we'll hear tonight, that God loves everybody, every person. And you and I are to share that love with one another. No, John is not saying love not the people and love not the planet. John is saying love not the power. 
He's saying not to love that, that evil, that organized system under Satan, which has set itself in opposition towards God. It operates itself on the basis of ungodly thoughts, ungodly attitudes, ungodly motives. This kind of des describes our political system. It talks about the values and the goals of this world that wants to conform you into its mold, not into the mold of the Lord Jesus Christ. This idea of this power that he is saying that we are not to love, it does not seek to promote God's glory or to submit to his sovereign authority. In fact, it's quite opposite. I want to give you three words describing this power, this world. And first of all, I see it's subtle, very subtle. It draws us away one decision at a time without our even realizing it many times. We start listening to the news a little bit too much, or we start listening to that coworker at work, and before we know it, we're a step farther than where we used to be, and before we know it, we're another step. Have you ever been drifting out on a, uh, an ocean or a lake, and the wave just kind of subtly just takes you farther and farther away from where you were? That's called drifting, and it's very subtle, and oftentimes, the prince of the power of, the, of this earth, the, the darkness that is encompassed in this earth, wants to subtly take you away from where you once were, and you look back going, man, how did I get here? One step at a time, one decision at a time. It's subtle, but it's also strong. It's like a gravitational pull of our physical bodies to the earth, the world's philosophies, the, ideolo the ideologies, the attitudes, the morals. They pull at us uh, and they pull us away from the truth and the promises of God over and over and over again. Come on, how many of you had to fight the devil this week? And he is strong. And you had to fight him this week. It's that power. But I also see in the world, this power we're talking about, this darkness is sensational. It's sensational. Come on, let's be honest this morning. There's pleasure in sin. Come on, that was... Uh, there is pleasure in sin, is there not? You don't have to say amen necessarily, but we can all agree we like our sin. That's why we go back to it. It's sensational. It brings pleasure. Come on, we're human. And we're being honest this morning. And this preacher needs this message more than you do. Because there is pleasure in sin for a season. For a season. And it's very sensational. It's very strong. And it's very subtle, the pull of the world. So it's no wonder that John would put these words together, love, that agape, that commitment, that unwavering commitment to love not the world, the power of this world, the subtlety of this world, the morals of this world, the value system of this world. Can I stop here and just clean off a spot? Can we shake the bush? Can we shuck the corn a little bit? Are you with me this morning? I didn't say we're praying, so don't bow your head just yet. Can we stop here and just maybe pose this question? Why do you think John had to include this? I'm going to get down right down here with us. Why do you think John had to include this? Can I give you my answer? Thanks for asking. Do you think John had to put this command in here because the people that he was writing to, as well as the people that I'm speaking to, as well as this preacher with all the fingers pointing right back at him, 
Is it not possible that the reason he put this in Scripture is because all of us have the natural tendency to be consumed by a love for the world? If he had to write this to them, and they didn't have the technology, they didn't have the cares of what we're going to see here in just a minute, the possessions and the pleasures and all that we're going to talk about in just a minute. We're going to step on some toes, and I guarantee it. If he had to write that to them in the first century, how much more does that need to be preached and hollered and yelled and spoken about in our generation? Because, Brother Danny, we're to be consumed by a love for the Lord, but too often we're being consumed, yeah, you got it, by a love for the, for the world. John had to include this because, as a direct command, he's saying, your tendency, Leo, is to love this world, and I'm telling you, love not the world. Your tendency, Brother Roberts, you might be on staff, but your tendency is to love the cares of this world, and you better mark it down. Satan's going to try and put every trap in the book he can to try and trip you up. Friend, if I could go to each and every one of you this morning, and if we stopped the message right here, we could have an altar call, and by golly, there ought not to be one person still sitting in a chair somewhere because all of us have to fight the natural tendency for the love of this world. But he goes on. He doesn't just stop here with a command, but he says, I want to give you a distinct contrast. I want to describe this command to you by showing you there's two sides of the fence. Can I give you this illustration real quick? You've seen it before. Can anybody, it's not a trick question, not a trick question at all, but I will trick you once I get there, all right? Is this glass full or empty? Empty. It's not. It's full. It's full of air. The only way that I can get that air out is by putting something in. When I put something in, I'm making a big mess, that's all right. When I put something in, no longer is that air there. Now there's water. There's something replacing that air. Friend, John was giving us a contrast. He said, hey, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. But then he gives the contrast. Instead, love the Father. Look at it with me if you would quickly and let me just move on. John further clarifies this command by sharing this stark or distinct contrast between our love for the world and our love for the Lord and the outcomes of where we place our affection. I see, first of all, this love for the world. And here's where we're going to maybe step on a few toes, mine included. He says, first of all, I want to point out in verse number 16, the lust of the flesh. Let's read in our Bible verse number 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I want you to see here the lust of the flesh. Lust refers to a strong desire, a strong impulse, and the word flesh refers to our fallen nature. How many of you still struggle with your fallen nature day to day and from time to time? All of us do, and we all have to fight the lust, this strong desire or impulse over our flesh. The lust of the flesh includes any strong desire or inclination of our fallen nature. This includes sexual sins, but it also includes the activity that stems from you and I self-seeking or in our godless nature that we are born with. 
I want to just say it this way. The lust of the flesh is our desire for satisfaction. Our desire for passion, our desire for pleasure, and many natural desires are legitimate if they're kept under control and if they're used in the fear for which God designed them. These desires for food, companionship, for intimacy, and for security are legitimate when we keep them within God's limits. And when we don't allow them to usurp his authority, if you were in, uh, in, in our Bible study class last week, you would have heard the illustration. It's okay to put your boat in the lake, uh, uh, in Moses Lake. It's okay to put your boat in the lake. But you better not let the lake get in your boat. We are in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And this lust, this desire, this strong ambition to have that which our flesh craves, the satisfaction and the pleasures and the, and, and the and it's, it's of the world. God says that we are to limit those. They, they have their rightful place, but they are not to be, or they become sinful when we seek to fulfill them in selfish and ungodly ways. I said it earlier, there is pleasure in sin, but only for a season. And by the way, have you ever noticed that you're not really ever satisfied? I ate last night, but I'm still hungry today. My flesh craves more and more and more. It wants more pleasure. It wants more satisfaction. It wants more passion to be involved. I want to live for a purpose, right? But then he goes on to say the second one is the lust of the eyes, that deep desire for, I'm using this word, stuff. Dr. Getch hates the word stuff. So I wrote down possessions. This is our lust, our strong desire for our possessions. All right, y'all can bow your heads now because this one's just for me, I'm sure. But how many of us get caught up in this life chasing after possessions? Let me say that again. I don't think you heard me. How many of us get caught up in this life chasing after possessions? If I only had one more, if I only had the latest and greatest, if I only had the nicer house, car, wife, uh, my wife's nice. <laughs> if I only had the better behaved kids, right? Possessions. This term points to our sinful desires of greed and covetousness, to want that which we do not have, but which others have. It also refers to our desires that stem from a false and superficial value. You see, through the eyes of this world, the world is constantly saying, buy the bigger, get the newer, you'll be happy. Find that beautiful or handsome man or woman, you'll be satisfied. Get that perfect job, have plenty of money, and, and your inner longings will all be quenched. But is as evident by the lives of the rich and famous, none of those things deliver on what they promise. One more thing will never satisfy you could have all the latest, the greatest, and the best, but the, and be the envy of all who see you and be the Joneses that everybody's trying to keep up with, but it will never satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Solomon, the king, said it this way, and he even experimented it and, 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 and tried it himself. But he said in Proverbs chapter 27, verse number 20, hell and destruction are never full, so the eyes of a man are never satisfied. He went on to say in Ecclesiastes, after trying it for himself, after gathering all the possessions that he could gather, this is what he recorded in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And whatsoever mine eye desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then 
I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. There was no profit under the sun. Can I sum it up for you? Solomon tried the first two. He tried the desire of satisfaction. He tried the desire of stuff, and he said it was like trying to capture the wind. It was vanity and vexation. Why? Because you can't keep up. You're never satisfied. Uh, I'll use the iPhone for just a minute. You're never going to have the latest and greatest because something else is always coming out. Your car is going to rust. It's going to wear down. The minute you drive it off the lot, it's already depreciated in value. Uh, hurricanes and storms and everything can take away the safety and the security of even your own home. Friends, possessions are not where you can find your love. But then I see thirdly, y'all still with me? I see thirdly the pride of life. This is the desire for status. The desire for position. While the lust of the flesh and the lust of eyes refer to the desire to have what you don't already have, the pride of life refers to the sinful pride over what you do have. And it's the desire to be better than others so that you can glory in yourself and in your accomplishments. Now, I understand there's a proper sense of, uh, of course, of doing your best in school and being the best employee. And I understand that you ought to give your best. But it's easy to forget many times that it's God who gave you everything that you have. You start boasting in your achievement. You start boasting in your possessions as if you attain these things by your own intelligence or your own hard work. And it's easy to think like Nebuchadnezzar the king in Daniel chapter 4 thought. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power for the honor of my majesty? Sometimes this idea of, or this pride of life, this desire for status or position, sometimes it is interwoven in with the other two, especially the desire for stuff. The reason that we want to eat right is so that we look good and so that others will think we're really worth something. We want to have the nicest house or the nicest car or the kids that always obey or that position at church or that beautiful family so that others will see that we finally mean something. It's a performance-based acceptance. If we perform, people will accept me. And I'll gain that position. I'll gain that status that I am chasing after. That status, that significance, hoping that it'll come and it never will. In fact, chasing after pleasures or chasing after possessions or chasing after position, that's what the world does, not what God does. I read this quote, and I liked it. If you try to satisfy your longing by sucking in the air of the world, you will not be able to drink of the sweet water of heaven. Anything in this world that is not God can rob your heart of the love for God. It can consume you, and it can replace your love for God with a love for itself. And the reason we do it is because we want to impress people. We want things to look right on the outward, but can I remind you, God doesn't look on the outward. God looks on the inside. God sees what you really are. So to love the world is to operate on the same principles as unbelievers. And 
Paul himself reminded us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we carry nothing out. All the possessions, all the, all the power, all the pleasures, all of it is nothing. And we all battle the temptations daily, and we often fail. But John's point is this. If you go on yielding to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, you're not consumed in your love for the Father. Rather, you're consumed in your love for the world. And Mark chapter 8, verse number 36 says it this way. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The only way that you and I can overcome that strong desire is the second part of that contrast. To love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And he goes on and he says the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. But he says if we're going to contrast that love, then we need to have a strong desire or a strong love. Or hey, let's just say it this way. Be consumed with a love for the Father. A love for the Father. The opposite of loving the world is not only loving the Father, but it's also obeying Him. This wording here that says doing the will of God, the will of God here does not refer to following His direction in your life. It refers to obeying His commandments as received in His Word. John chapter 14, number, uh, verse number 15, Jesus said, If ye love me, keep my commandments. John chapter 15, verse 10, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. We read the verses this morning, Mark chapter 12, verse number 30, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Friends, we can say we love God, but our actions speak louder than our words. It's kind of like the boy that got it all set up to have an engagement with his, his wonderful, uh, soon-to-be wife and he wanted to marry her and so he asked permission from her father and he got it all scheduled to be able to take her out to a nice meal and there at that nice meal he reached down into his pocket and he got down on one knee and he just looked up into her with loving eyes and tenderness in his heart and he said unto her honey he said you're the most beautiful woman that I have ever seen and I want to spend the rest of my life with you would you marry me and of course she was giddy and happy and of course she said yes and and as soon as she said yes he got up off her knee off his knee they each embrace, and then he went to sit back down on his side of the table. About that time, another lady was coming into the restaurant, and about the same age as them, and she walked right past the table, and as that boy was just sitting back down after asking his now fiancé to marry him, turned back to her brother Mike and said, wow, did you see that girl? She's beautiful. Probably the most beautiful I've ever seen. Now, wait a second. His actions spoke a lot louder than his words to the one that was sitting across from him. Oh, you're the most beautiful I've ever seen. You got your shoes on? Lord, I love you. I love you, Lord, and I live my voice on Sunday morning. But Monday morning, who do you love? Tuesday night, who do you love? Well, Brother Dan, you don't understand. At church, I don't have to... At church, I can... I understand we have to pay bills. I understand that we have to do some things to live in this life. We are of this world. I understand that. But we're not to... We're in this world, but we're not to be of this world. And I'm afraid that too many Christians, we say we love God, but our actions say different. Wow, did you see that? She, wow, she was pretty. 
God, I love you, but, well, the game's on tonight. God, I love you, but, uh, well, to, to bring cookies and snacks, that would mean an extra commitment. I'd have, to, I'd have to wake up early. Well, I'm all for singing in choir, and Brother Micah does a great job, but I don't know. Five o'clock practices are pretty early on a Sunday afternoon nap. But, Lord, I love you. We all right this morning? Either some of you are sleepy or some of you are already ready to pray. <laughs> our love for the world is to be contrasted by our love for God. Can I just give you a real quick reason why? Because the world's eroding. Amen. Verse 17 tells us that the less of the eyes, less of the flesh, the pride of life, it's all going to pass away. Look at verse number 17 real quick with me. Let me just say it exactly how God's word says it. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof... The world's eroding. It's not getting better and better. And if you love this world, this world is going to take you with it when it passes away. But look at the rest of verse number 17, Brother Tom. It says, but he that doeth the will of God abideth for, what's that last word? Ever. Ever. Abideth forever. If you love the world, it will pass away and it will take, it, take you with you. But our lives are to be lived in the light of eternity and we can't take earthly possessions with us when we die. But we can invest our lives into the two things that are eternal and that is the word of God and the souls of man. We can do what God's word tells us to do and we can abide in his love by keeping his commandments and by daily being in his word and obeying and following his word. And we can invest our lives in the lives of other people as we'll hear about even tonight about how we can show love to an unsaved un uh, uh, lost and darkened world that Jesus died for and you and I can invest our lives into eternal things because we can abide in his love Amen. not in our love for the world because how many hearse have you ever seen being or carrying their U-Haul right you heard that before you can't take it when you're gone the world's eroding but the will of God is ever abiding and will last forever so I see a simple, direct command, love not the world, illustrated by a distinct contrast. And that leads us, lastly, and we're all done, to a deliberate choice. Is it significant that the Bible directs its commands to our hearts and to our affections? The greatest commandment, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 4, verse number 23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. So John's commandment, John's challenge, John's cha John challenges us to then choose our love. Either you love the world, you're consumed by the world, or you're consumed in your love for the Lord. But you can't have both. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Each of us here this morning must make a decision. Will you, will you live your life to know God and to be consumed in his love, or will you live your life for this world and its fleeting, eroding, passing pleasures? Because, friends, you can't have both. Even though he had once been a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul, Demas 
succumbed to the lure of the world. 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, for those of you that know it. For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. It can happen even to the best of us. But James says it a little bit stronger when he says in James chapter 4, verse number 4, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship of the world is enmity, or it's a division with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. The Father is a jealous God, one who deserves and demands total allegiance. And for us to love the Father, that begins at the cross where you received his supreme gift of love. The Lord Jesus Christ, that was the substitute, the propitiation for your sins and for my sins. And if we're going to love him with that unwavering, unconditional commitment that John is referring to, that we are not to have to the world, then we've got to put that commitment and that unconditional, uh, unwavering love towards the Father. So the choice is yours. Will you love the world or will you love the Father? There are two possibilities that maybe some of you are sitting here thinking, well, Brother Dan, I'm hearing you preach, and, and I, just, I just don't feel much love for the Lord. Well, I believe there's two reasons for that. Number one, you don't know Him. You've never been born again. You don't know Him as your personal Lord and Savior, and today you can trust Him as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe like my, like my own personal testimony, I grew up in church. I grew up under the preaching of Pastor Senior. He was my pastor growing up, and I was at the church house. Every time the church doors were open, my mom played the piano, and my dad was the head usher, and he held up the back wall so that it wouldn't fall in. I grew up in church. I had a head knowledge of God, but I didn't have a heart knowledge of God. And there could be one or two or ten sitting here this morning, and the reason you are more consumed in your love for the world is because you've just been playing head games like I was. You know about God, but you don't truly know God. Let me just give you this admonition. Trust Him today. Trust Him today because the world and its pleasures and positions and all that it has to offer is fleeting. It's passing and it'll take you with it. But a love for the Lord and knowing Him as your personal Lord and Savior, you'll live in heaven for eternity. But I perhaps that most likely, most of us sitting here this morning would fall into the second category. And that is simply that the reason you don't feel much love for the Lord is because your love has grown cold or weak. You've tasted what it means to have a heart for God, and you can recall how once you felt to know Him was better than anything the world could offer, but then time has come in between that decision and now, and your heart has grown cold. Can I tell you the prescription to warm your heart back up is no different than the prescription for salvation in the first place? The same spirit that begets life also nourishes life. The same word that ignites the fire of love also rekindles that fire of love. The same Christ who once brought you out of darkness and out of that horrible pit into his marvelous light and has set your feet on a solid rock, he can take away the long dark night of your soul. So yield yourself to the Holy Spirit, immerse yourself in his word, and cry out to Christ for a new vision of his glory and of his grace. And don't be content with just being 
lukewarm. Don't be content, but rather pursue. Be consumed with His love. I'm going to read you two somewhat lengthy statements and we'll be done. But I want you to close your Bibles. We're all done. But I want you to listen to these next few statements and then we'll have an invitation. Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher from yesteryear, in one of his sermons he argued and said, True religion in great part consists in holy affections. If your heart is cold toward the Father and it's captivated by the glitz and glamour of this world, you need to ask yourself this question. Do I belong to the Father or to the world? In 1989, Tom Sign, I don't know this individual, but he wrote an insightful commentary in, in one of the Christian magazines of the day. And I want to just read to you just this passage that came from his article. And I want you to think about this idea of being consumed in our love, and then we're done. This was from 1989. Things have changed since 1989. But he wrote this. Whatever commands our time, our energy, our resources commands us. If we are honest, we will admit that our lives really aren't that different from those of our secular counterparts. I suspect that one of the reasons that we are so ineffective in our evangelism is that we are so much like the people around us that we have very little to which we can call them to. We hang around the church building a little more. We abstain from a few more things, but we simply aren't that much different. And as a result of this unfortunate accommodation, Christianity is reduced to little more than a spiritual crutch to help us through the minefields of the upwardly mobile life. He says, God is there to help us get our promotions, our house in the suburbs, our bills paid, but somehow God has become a co-conspirator in our agendas instead of us becoming a co-worker in His Something is seriously amiss. This morning, some of you need to make a choice. Will you be consumed in your love for the world or in your love for your Father? Most of us, though, have already made that choice. We just need to follow through with it. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, are you being consumed in your love for God and in your love for others? Or are you being consumed by this forbidden love that we are not to be involved in? Father, thank you for the message this morning, and I pray something said was a help. And Lord, if it was for no one else other than this preacher, Lord, I pray that you'd help me, not this week, but today, to realize my motives and to realize my time and my effort and my resources and where I'm placing those things, that I might not place them in things that have a no eternal value, things that are just going to burn up and pass away. But help me, Lord, to live for you, to be consumed in my mind, my heart, my soul, my strength with loving you and loving others. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know that love, then I pray that this morning, before they leave this place, that they would 
speak to me or speak to one of the staff or find a friend that, Lord, would help them to know the love that you have for that human race, that unregenerate people. And I pray, Lord, that they would trust you as their Lord and Savior. Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you would like further information about our church, please visit moseslakebaptistchurch.com.